word of the Lord says this, My son, give to me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we ask that this morning you will help us by your spirit. We ask that we will see Jesus Christ and all of his majesty and glory and beauty, that we will be able to follow him and obey him the way that you have prescribed for us to obey him. Forgive us this morning of our laziness. Forgive us this morning of our lack of desiring Christ. We pray that throughout this sermon that you will ignite our affections and our heart toward you. So we pray that your Holy Spirit will be with us all, be with the preacher, and be with those who are hearing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Other than the great church father and theologian Augustine, and maybe even the great Catholic theologian Thomas Aquinas, no theologian in church history has had more of a greater impact on the church than the French reformer John Calvin. When the Reformation needed a theologian, when the Reformation needed someone who could systematically put doctrine in categories, take the the theology of Luther and all of those who have come before him and put them in a way that we could or the people could listen to and read, then John Calvin answered the call. At 24, he was saved. At 25, he wrote probably the greatest systematic theology that's ever been penned, the Institutes of Christian Religion. It's been said that Calvin preached over 2,000 sermons in his lifetime. He preached twice on Sunday and three times during the week. He wrote commentaries on nearly every book of the Bible. And while Calvin is known for his sound exegesis of Scripture and his formulation of doctrine, the motto that Calvin lived by was not of one that concerned the head, but it was one that concerned the heart. When John Calvin would write letters, the seal at the end of every letter would be a hand holding out a heart. This is the seal or symbol of John Calvin. This is what John Calvin would want to be known as. Not merely as a theologian, but as one whose heart was given to God. This symbol of Calvin would be an image of the words he lived by every single day. I offer my heart to thee, O Lord, promptly and Sincerely, that is the great motto of the great theologian John Calvin. And friends, what Calvin illustrates for us is a life that God desires for us to live, is a life that is given to him solely and completely, not just with our minds and wills, our bodies, but with our hearts. And that's what we wanted to consider this morning under the umbrella of God's commands. We read in Proverbs chapter 23, verse 26, these great words, My son, give to me your heart. 
And there's just three points I want us to consider this morning. Point number one, the giver of the command. The giver of the command. The second point, the nature of the command. The nature of the command. And the third point, the object of the command. The giver of the command, the nature of the command, and the object of the command. Let's consider the first point, and that is the giver of the command. As we open the 23rd chapter of the 26th verse of Proverbs, we have in the context Solomon speaking to his son. And from verse 26 till the end of the chapter, if you ever get time to read, it's some of the greatest wisdom that one could ever read. Solomon is essentially teaching his son how his son is to behave. How his son is to keep away from all the things that the world tries to throw at him or that the world tries to advertise. But in verse 26, he begins this great wisdom to his son with the greatest wisdom that a father could implant to his son. Is this not the greatest thing that one can tell their child, my son Give to me your heart. But friends, we aren't to think that it's only Solomon who speaks this morning. We aren't to think that the voice this morning is only Solomon and the recipient is only his son. But it is someone who is far greater than Solomon who speaks in this 26th verse. It is someone who Solomon pointed forward to Someone who is far greater, who exceeds Solomon. Friends, the one who speaks to you this morning, the one who speaks to me this morning is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Christ who from the throne of grace speaks this morning at 11.09 a.m. to you. And what is he saying? He says, my son, give to me your heart. This is indeed a command by our Lord. And surely as his children, we are obligated to keep all of God's commands, are we not? By the sheer fact that we exist, we owe obedience to God. For we are the creatures and he is the creator. But friends, some of us sinners, need some convincing. Isn't that sad? Some of us need more convincing in order for us to obey the God of Scripture. I take, for example, myself. When someone would ask me to do this or do that, I would, I would say, who are you that I may obey what you are saying? What are your credentials who do you think that you are? Well, friends, we have to ask, who is Jesus Christ? And I would argue that one consideration of the person of Christ is all that we need in order for us to offer complete obedience to him. So who is Christ? How do, would you define the person of Christ? How would you describe him? And my, my favorite way of describing who our Savior is is taken from chapter 5 of the Song of Solomon. Christ is altogether lovely. 
He's altogether lovely. And isn't that a fitting description of our Christ? From the person, from his person to his works, from his preaching to his offices to all the things that he said, Christ is altogether lovely. He's lovely in his person. He is the eternal son of the eternal God. He's the second person of the glorious Trinity. He is the image of the Father. He is the wisdom of the Father. He's the radiance of the Father's glory. He's the very content of Isaiah's majestic and glorious vision. The Lord who sits upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe fills the temple. But we must not forget, friends, that the one who is lovely as God is also lovely as man. Jesus Christ, in Christ, heaven and earth met in one person. The finite and the infinite all met in this one glorious person, Jesus Christ. The one who hung the stars is also the one who walked the dusty roads of Jerusalem. The creator of heaven was a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. God came down in the form of a servant. On earth, the greatest somebody who ever was, that ever was, was the greatest nobody that ever was. He was given a common name of the day, Jesus. He was born in a town where men asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? But yet his lowliness did not detract from his loveliness. Although he was a man despised and acquainted with griefs, a man that other men hid their faces from, that doesn't mean that our Christ was not lovely. The whole person of Christ, as the Puritans would say, is a deep sea of sweetness. He is all fair without any spot, altogether lovely without any blemish or deformity. And friends, the beauty of Christ does not stop at his person, but it extends to his works. He fed those who were hungry. He healed those who were sick. But friends, the beauty of Christ's work goes far beyond the miracles. Our Lord lived for us. He submitted himself to God's law. As an Israelite, he submitted himself to God's ceremonial and civil law. And as the last and better Adam, our Lord submitted himself to God's moral law. But he does this, why? Not to abolish the law but to fulfill the law. And in fulfilling the law, what he does for us is he releases us from under the condemnation and curse of the law. Consider how lovely Christ is in his relation to us. Isn't Christ a lovely redeemer? By his life and death, he redeemed us out of the slave market of sin. All that we owe to God was paid for by Jesus Christ. He redeemed us not with silver and gold, but with his own precious blood. Consider Christ and how lovely he is as our bridegroom. Christ is the great husband of the church. He says to us what husbands can never say to their wives, I will never leave you, nor I will never forsake you. He's a husband who will never lie, never cheat on his bride. Consider how Christ is lovely in his relation of a friend. Jesus says in John 15, 15, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. 
No friend in the world is so generous of a friend as Christ is to believers. He's a friend whom you can talk to day and night, who will always have the right thing to say. He will always give you the perfect advice. He will never steer you wrong. He will always have your back. He will always be by your side. He says in John 15, 13, Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Consider the loveliness of Christ's words. And one of my favorite things to do is read all of the sweet sayings of Christ. What love poem could match the sweet words of Christ? He says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says in John six thirty five, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He says in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. All that we need is found in Jesus Christ. Gentleness is what marked our Lord's character. No greater person spoke with greater and tender words. And friends, that one who spoke over 2,000 years ago, the one who Matthew recorded, who John recorded, who Mark and Luke recorded, that one, he speaks to you now. That one who spoke over 2,000 years ago, right now, saint, is speaking to you. And what is he saying? He says, my son... Give to me your heart. But did you notice, friends, did you notice the way Christ approaches us? Did you notice how kind and how how gentle Christ approaches us this morning? He comes to us not in thunder and lightning, but as the great shepherd to his flock, as a father who sits his child on his lap, He says, my son, my son, before he gives you the command, he approaches you with a tender kiss. He says, my son. Now, friends, there are two options from this point of the sermon till its conclusion. There are two choices that you are to make. You can either respond to Christ as a lawyer or an attorney debating whether or not you will answer the Savior's call. Or you can respond as a son and daughter would respond. When Christ says, my son, we say, yes, Lord, I am here. Those are the two options. Will you debate Christ when he says, my son, or will you say, yes, Lord, what do you need from me? Consider with me the second point, and that is the nature of, of the command, the nature of the command. We've already established that it is Jesus Christ who was speaking in our text this morning. Christ from the throne of grace speaks this morning to you. And the way he approaches his sheep is not like a cruel or, 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 or mean master, but as a gentle and patient shepherd. He says, my son... And our response should be one like of Samuel. For when the Lord called Samuel, Samuel said, Here I am. 
What is Christ calling us to? He says, my son, give. Give. It's simple, is it not? Give to the Lord. But friends, this simple thing is quite honestly one of the hardest things to do. I've already said that this is a command by our Lord. And all the commands of God are binding on all Christians to obey. There is not one thing that God commands that a Christian is exempt from obeying. We all are bound to keep God's law. But friends, it's quite sad, is it not? That in the church today, in light of all the things that we debate in the church, we debate whether or not God's law is still in effect for the Christian. Amongst all the things we could debate, we debate whether or not God's law has any relevance in our lives. We pick and choose which part of God's law that we will allow to regulate our lives. But friends, God's law is not subjective. God's law are not laws that we are to pick and choose. God's law is not suggestions, but they are the path in which the Christian is to walk according to. The Christian life, yes, begins with the gospel, but then it's lived out according to God's law. The gospel tells you who you are in Christ, and the law tells you how you are to live in light of Christ. And the sad state of the church today is because we overemphasize the gospel so much, because we overemphasize the grace of God so much and forgiveness of Christ so much, is that when the preacher calls for the congregation to obey, he's looked at as a legalist. Because we overemphasize the grace of God so much, there is no room for us to obey God. When the preacher pleads to Christians to behave in the marketplace like Christians, the preacher is immediately charged with preaching works righteousness. No, I'm saved in Christ. Christ paid it all. Friends, don't get me wrong. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are saved. We enter the throne of heaven by grace. We stay in by grace. We will get to the finish line by grace. But the great debate of the early church was, what does the Christian life look like to one who professes that great confession of the church? You believe that it is only by God's grace that saves you. Amen. You believe that there is no work that you can add to your salvation, but it's only faith in Christ that saves you. Amen. Now what? How are you to live and operate in this sin-sick world, how is the Christian to behave like a Christian? Are there any rules? Is there any law? And the great common theme of Scripture is that the Christian life who professes that great confession of the church is to look like one who walks by the Spirit according to God's law. That's what the Christian life looks like. One who walks by the Spirit according to God's law. The Christian life is a life that is marked out by obedience. 
How do people know that you're a Christian? Because you obey. That Christian life is a life that produces good works. Not to obtain salvation. Not to merit salvation. Not to earn salvation. But to walk in the way that God has ordained our salvation. Friends, you were saved on two good works. So do them. Behave like Christians. And likewise here, Christ is calling us to produce a good work. He's calling for us to do something good for our soul. That's what God's commands are. They're things that God has commanded that are good for our soul. And this good work that Christ is calling us to produce is this. My son, give. Give. And when Christ says give, saint, he's only asking of us to do first what he has done for us. He's only asking for us to echo what he's done for us. Christ commands that we give to him first because he has first given to us. And what has Christ given to us? Well, we can go and do the deed and say that Christ has given to us reconciliation with the Father. He's given us His Spirit. He's given us all heavenly riches. We could go down the list and say all of these wonderful things that Christ has given to us, but friends, the rarest jewel in God's cabin, the one thing that Christ has given to us that far exceeds all other things, is Him Himself. Christ has given to us Himself. He's given to us 33 years of perfect obedience to God's law. He gave us a life that was tempted by Satan, that was mocked by his people, that was betrayed by his friends. But the climax of what Christ gave is recorded for us in Isaiah 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike. And I gave my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. That is the very apex, Christian, of what Christ gave to you. He gave his back for the Roman soldiers to strike. He gave his beard for the Roman soldiers to pluck out. He did not hide his face. He did not hide his body. He gave his hands to be nailed. He gave his feet to be pierced. With, heart, with a heart bursting of love for the sinner, he gave. He gave all of him. He did not turn back. In fact, if there ever once was a time when Christ turned back, it was to give his back to those Roman soldiers to strike. He gave. He gave in times eternal. When the Father said, Who will go Christ responded like Isaiah, Here I am, Lord, send me. Christ gave voluntarily and freely. He gave. He gave himself. And now, this morning, friends, he's asking you to give. The one who gave all of him is asking you to give all of yourself. He's asking you to echo back to him that which he's already done for you. Give to him. Which leads to our final point, friends, and that is the object 
of the command. The object of the command. We've seen who is commanding is Jesus Christ. He says to give. Now what is the object? What are we to give? He says, my son, give to me your heart. Give to me your heart. Now, why the heart? Why not the body? Why not the will? Why not the mind? But why does Christ say, give to me the heart? Your heart. What's so special about the heart? Well, in Scripture, the heart is treated as the seat of governing authority in man. Simply put, the heart is man's deciding center. It's the heart that regulates all other things. What a man loves in his heart is that which he will seek after. The heart controls our being. The heart motivates us to give to something our all. And when Christ commands us to give to him our heart, he's only commanding us to give to him the very center of our being. Why not the mind? Why not the will, the, 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 the body? Because the heart controls those things. Simply put, what is Christ asking from us? He's asking for all of us. He's asking for all of us. Give to me your heart. And friends, if we were honest with yourselves, this simple command is probably the hardest of God's commands to follow. Is it not? This simple thing to give your heart to God is maybe the hardest thing to do. There are so many things in this world that is competing with our devotion to God, is there not? Money, children, food, exercise, our phones. There's so many things that are in our ways and that is it's like a race between between God and all these other things for our heart. So many of us love God while also loving the world. We have one foot in Christianity and, and one foot in the world. We give our heart to God. And while it's barely in God's hands, we're asking for it back. We give our heart to God and while God is, can barely put a fingerprint on it, we're asking for it back. Friends, we can't give to God half of our hearts. God is not like the relationships we've had with our significant other where, you know, when you buy your significant other a heart necklace and you wear one part of the heart and she gets the other. That's not how it works with God. He has all or he has nothing. Simple, simply put, we can't split our heart down the middle with God. Friends, when, when we think about married people, what do we call a man who's married, but his heart is divided amongst other women? What do we call that when? What do we, how do we look at a woman, and how disgusting do we look at a woman who's, who's lovely, who's loved but only by one man, 
but she gives herself to all other men. How sick would we look at that woman? Oh, brothers and sisters, if they are looked down upon, then how ugly are we in the sight of God? If watching a show like Cheaters gets us angry, or hearing from our friend that they were cheated on by another, and that causes a rise out of us, then then think about yourself. We just read the second commandment. How many of us have idols stuck under our beds and in our closets? Ask yourself this morning, friends, how many idols are you currently cheating on God with? How many partners do you have outside of God? How many idols do you have that is taking away from all that you can be in Jesus Christ? How many idols are pulling and tugging at your heart while God has none of it? Friends, when Christ calls for our heart, he's calling for us to be exclusive with him. No one, no other love, but Christ in Christ alone. Why? Again, why does Christ say, give me the heart? Because, Christian, it's easy to give Christ your lips. It's easy to say that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior of your life. Why the heart? Because it's easy to give Christ your duties. You're sitting here now. It's easy. Just wake up, put on clothes, eat, come. It's easy. Put money in the offering basket. It's easy. But friends, you can do all those things and not give your heart to God. Christ calls for your heart. For your heart. And ultimately, friends... The giving of our heart to Christ is simply the echoing back of what God has already given to us. Give to God what he's given to us. And we already know that it is Jesus Christ who has given himself to us. But we must remember that it was also the Father who gave his Son to us. It was the Father, as it were, he gave his heart to us. He gave his son to us. Why not give your heart back to him? I love the story of Abraham when he's about to sacrifice his son. What was he doing there? Essentially, he was giving his heart to God. Friend, think of yourself. Think of all the other things in your life that you give your heart to. All of those things that have never done anything for you. And think of the one who has done the greatest thing for you. Give your heart to God. In closing, friends, how are we to live in light of this sermon? Well, I think the practical takeaway is obvious. Give your heart to God. If there's one thing you've learned this morning, it is this one profound wisdom that you are to carry from this time to the point you meet your Lord and Savior, give your heart to God. If you say, Christ has my heart, but so does the world, 
Then, friends, evaluate what areas in your life that are competing with God. Find them and kill them. Find them and remove them. Samuel Rutherford has said, they that count little of sin count little of God. Find your sin. Find those things that may not be sin, but they are taking away from full devotion to Christ. Find those things. Forsake your sin if you are in Christ. Cut off your hand. Pluck out your eye, for it is better to enter heaven with missing body parts than enter hell whole. If you're here and you say, Christ doesn't have my heart, then friend, this morning is your invitation. This is your invitation from Christ. What are you waiting for? Today is the day of salvation. Don't delay. But I would also add, those who are on the fence, who are lukewarm, who have your foot in Christianity and your foot in the world, for once in your life, make a decision. For once and for all, come to a conclusion of what's going to happen with your life. If Baal is God, serve Him. If God is God, then serve Him. Serve someone. And I plead with you this morning, choose Christ. Christ this morning is offering to you a better portion. He's offering to you a holiday at the sea. Choose Jesus Christ. This morning, Christ is offering himself to you. His arms are wide open. Come to me. Give me your heart. Choose Christ, saint. And lastly, you may say, Amen, brother, all those things. Now, how do I begin? How do I start and how do I begin this process of giving Christ my heart? Where do I start? It all starts with repentance. Repent. And then repent again. And then when you are tired of repenting, repent for being tired of repenting. Repent to Christ. And then daily kill sin. Obey God's law. Read your word. Read good books. Pray every single day that God will warm your chilly heart. That your heart may be like Calvin, inflamed in your hand, promptly and sincerely giving to God. By the Spirit, allow the sweet person of Christ to own every fiber of your body, every corner of your mind, and every inch of your heart. Seek Christ, saint. And those who seek Christ, and I close with the words of the Lord in Jeremiah 29, verses 13 and 14, you will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all of your heart, I will be found by you declares the Lord. Seek the Lord, saints, and give to him what is rightly due to him, your heart. Let's pray.